This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast where we talk about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement. I'm Marianne Matzo, a nurse practitioner, and I use my 43 years of nursing experience to help you understand what happens at the end of life. And I'm Charlie Navarrete, an actor in New York City, and here to ask the questions that you may have while listening to our broadcast. We are both here because we believe that the more you know, the better prepared you are to make difficult decisions. So please relax, get yourself a beverage, something good to eat, maybe some cake, Uh and thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me. In the first half, we have our recipe of the week from Charlie. In the second half, we're going to be talking about how a body breaks down after death. And in the third half, Charlie reports about body farms. Mm. Mm. Nice little light show for Uh the afternoon. uh Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the recipe, Charles? Well, Marianne, um, to prepare for our discussion on body farms, let's bake something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you should never go to a body farm hungry. It's like one of the rules. Yes, yes, yes. Historically, uh, the recipe for uh, scripture cake calls for just that, scripture. Rather than typical ingredients, the traditional recipe included a list of Bible verses instead, requiring the baker to call on her knowledge of Scripture to make the cake, which is always better than cutting the cheese, or at least uh, compel her to thumb through the Old Testament. For example, one cup of Judges 5.25 meant that you needed a cup of butter. Some historians believe The cake originated in England or Ireland in the late 1700s, but the first printed version of the recipe has been attributed to a June 1897 issue of the Atlanta Constitution, now the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Scripture cake was especially popular in southern Appalachia in the late 19th century, where it was used as a two-in-one tool to teach young women to bake and to commit Bible verses to memory. Here, we've simplified the recipe so you don't have to thumb through your Bible with shortening on your hands. And because it makes two loaves, you can keep one for yourself and bring the other to a funeral lunch or share it with a new neighbor. How's that for gospel hospitality? Amen. Mm -hmm. You will find the recipe and additional resources for this program on our webpage. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And remember to rate and review this podcast. As a licensed nonprofit organization, we are dependent on your kindness and always appreciate your donations, which, by the way, are tax deductible. Please go to our webpage to donate in support of our work at www.everyonedies.org. That's every, the number one, dies.org. Marianne? So, Charlie, you ever yes. wondered what happens to your body after you die? Um, no, um, I guess I won't be cognizant of it. So, no, it never uh, crossed my mind. Why? So, 
Well, you probably have a vague idea, but not really a thoroughly realistic conception of the changes that your body goes through oh. after death. Oh, in that case, oh, I see what you're saying now. Yes, worm food. Well, that's one way to look at it. Okay. But, you know, you wouldn't be alone. Most people possess no, be, very little be, understanding all those worms. of the process of human death and decay. Mm -hmm. So, human decomposition is a natural process that involves the breakdown of tissues after death. And while the rate of human decomposition varies due to several factors, including weather, temperature, moisture, pH, oxygen level, cause of death, the body position... All human bodies follow the same four stages of human decomposition. Which are? The rate of decomposition is largely dependent on the cause of death, the weight of the deceased, and other environmental factors. For example, bodies decay at a faster rate if they're exposed to the elements or wildlife, if they're in warm environments, or if they're underwater. So to make this discussion a little bit easier for me, I'm going to focus on the decomposition process without embalming when the body is in a neutral climate, not in a coffin, and the remains are undisturbed <laughs> because all of those are variables and all of those change the whole story. So I'm going to try to keep it simple. All right. The first stage of human decomposition is called autolysis, or self-digestion, and it begins immediately after death. As soon as blood circulation and respiration stop, the body has no way of getting oxygen or removing waste. Excess carbon dioxide causes an acidic environment, causing membranes and cells to rupture. The membranes release enzymes that begin eating the cells from the inside out. So bodies are meant to come to life in a certain way, to function in a certain way. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about how they die. They're meant to die in a certain way. And in fact, after death, they're meant to break down in a certain way. So rigor mortis happens about three hours after death, and that causes the muscles to stiffen up. Small blisters filled with a nutrient-rich fluid begin appearing on the internal organs and the skin's surface. The body will appear to have a sheen due to ruptured blisters, and the skin's top layer will begin to loosen. Then the second stage is bloat. 24 to 72 hours after death, leaked enzymes from the first stage begin producing gases. The sulfur-containing compounds that the bacteria release also cause skin discoloration. Due to the gases, the human body can double in size. In addition, insect activity can be present. And if you've been listening to the last few episodes, Charlie's been talking about vampires and putting sice in the um, graves to keep the, the vampire from coming out. And all of that is folk wisdom, if you will, based on the actual fact. The actual fact is that the body bloats. And if it hasn't been buried well, if it's not in a casket like 
in the early days, it wasn't a casket. People would be buried just in a cotton shroud. Mm -hmm. So if there was a rain and they weren't buried deep enough, when they got to the bloat stage, they could come out of the ground. And because people didn't understand how what was going on in terms of the body decompensation, because people didn't understand body decomposition, their assumption or the story that went with it was these were vampires and they were rising from the grave. Good evening. So, yeah, so they would put the scythe or whatever to puncture the skin so that the bloat would dissipate. The microorganisms and the bacteria produce extremely unpleasant odors called putrefaction. These odors often alert others that a person has died and can linger long after a body has been removed. So right at the end of that bloat stage, the rigor rigor mortis is subsiding. The third stage is what's called active decay. Fluids released from the orifice indicate that this is the beginning of active decay. Organs, muscles, and the skin become liquefied. When all the body's soft tissue decomposes, hair, bones, cartilage, and other products of decay remain. The cadaver loses the most mass during this stage. Now, in the three to five days after the death, um, these, the organs continue to decompose. Bodily fluids leak from orifice. The skin turns a greenish color, and the body starts to bloat and blood-forming foam, like this blood foam leaks from the mouth and the nose. Eight to ten days post-mortem, the body turns from green to red as the blood decomposes and gases are accumulating. About two weeks or so post-mortem after the death, the teeth and the nails fall out. And about a month post-mortem, the corpse begins to liquefy into a dark sludge. Now, stage four is called skeletization. Because the skeleton has a decomposition rate based on the loss of the organic or the collagen in inorganic components, there's no set time frame when skeletization occurs. This can take anywhere from one month to several years, depending on the environment and the burial. You may be wondering, does the skeleton also decompose? The answer is yes. If animals don't destroy or move the bones, skeleton normally take about 20 years to dissolve in fertile soil. However, in sand or neutral soil, skeletons can remain intact for hundreds of years. Remember the bog people report that Charlie did from episode 34? I do. I remember it. Yeah, well, good for you. That's what's that's what we're going. That's what's going on there. So, why is all this even important to know? Most people are choosing alternatives to the traditional embalming and burial. Information about what happens to the body after death, if not interfered with by embalming, is really good information to have. You might not want to chat about it over dinner unless you're with nurses, in which case we love to talk about these things. But. You know, I don't want to be too graphic, but I want you to understand that there are these these phases that the body's going to go through. It's completely normal. It can be totally interfered with by embalming, which preserves the body. 
And um, actually, our next show is going to be about embalming, so you stay tuned for that one. Mm-hmm. But it's just some good, simple information. And I'm sure if you've watched any crime show, you've heard or seen all of this information at one stage or another. Actually, a turkey, like at Thanksgiving, um, when with the glaze, and uh, would that be a type of embalming, or am I just really off base here? You're really off base right, because— good. The, the embalming is like, like if you smoked a turkey yeah. in a smokehouse or bacon in a smokehouse, that is sort of, I guess, an embalming process. Oh, yes, that, that's what I meant. Preserv- that's it. That's it's exactly what I was thinking of, Marianne. Thank you. Yes, that's exactly what Okay, no, I haven't a clue See, what I'm can, talking about. I can, yes. re- uh-huh. I can read your mind after all these years. Well, no, it's a, it's a way of preserving you know, so that the right, right, turkey right, right. or the ham doesn't break down. It's smoked and it can hang in that smokehouse till Easter. So how do we know about all this is from a lot of research done on body farms, which Charlie's going to do a report on. Uh-huh. Yes, I am. Dr. William Bass opened the first body farm in 1971 as a place to conduct research into human decomposition. The police had repeatedly asked for his help analyzing bodies in criminal cases. Bass came up with the idea for body farms around the time he was asked to consult on a local case. The police had noticed that the Civil War era grave of Colonel William Shy had been recently disturbed and the corpse inside looked surprisingly fresh. They suspected that someone had recently been murdered and then placed in this old grave to cover up the crime. Bass noted the body's still pink flesh and informed the police that he indeed believed that the Civil War era corpse had been swapped for a recent body, one dead less than a year. He was wrong. Further analysis of the dead man's teeth and clothes showed that this was indeed William Shy his body preserved thanks to embalming and a tightly sealed iron casket. Yeah, go figure. Considering that Bass was off by more than 100 years, he knew that much more study was needed on the topic of human decomposition. Body farms were the answer. What started as a small area with one body has developed into a three-acre complex that contains remains of around 40 individuals at any one time. Each body farm has a different focus. The Tennessee body farm pursues a broad range of study into decomposition under all conditions, buried, unburied, underwater, and even in the trunks of cars. The body farm at Western Carolina places emphasis on decomposition in the mountainous region of the Carolinas. Texas's body farm also provides region-specific data. Forensic anthropologists from states like New Mexico wait for data from Texas so they can comprehensively study decomposition in desert climates. Procedures can vary, but the process generally is, first, researchers take measurements and photographs as well as hair and blood samples. Then they assign the body an identifying number, bring it out to the grounds, and place it there at least a few feet away from any other bodies. There are about 50 laying out at any one time. The researchers will deposit the body, usually naked, but not always. 
in a specific location according to the kind of research they are doing. Sometimes, bodies are left in the open sun to observe the effects of that, other times in the shade, or in high grass, and so on. Researchers sometimes place bodies under cages to prevent opportunistic creatures like vultures from interfering. But bodies might also be left out so that the staff can observe the effects of those creatures. Furthermore, researchers might position the bodies in specific places, the kinds of places where police might find a body in real-life homicide cases. For example, corpses on body farms might be left in water tanks tied to trees, or even placed in car trunks. And if placed in a car trunk, leave the gun, take the cannolis. Meanwhile, a weather station monitors all relevant factors, including temperature, humidity, and so on, while the researchers monitor the body's decomposition closely. Body farms have allowed scientists to learn several things that are both fascinating and useful in police investigations. For example, researchers have developed better time-of-death estimates based on gases being emitted from the body, which are released in a particular pattern over time. Additionally, researchers can now better determine the environmental conditions that accompanied somebody's death and whether that person was wearing clothes, for example. They've seen bodies, clothed and unclothed, decompose in various environmental conditions, and they know what happens to the body in each case. Breakthroughs made at body farms can even help authorities find missing bodies. Body farm scientists have determined the specific kinds of chemicals that accumulate around dead humans, and if you can find those chemicals, perhaps you can find the body. And that's it for this week's show. Please stay tuned for the continuing saga of Everyone Dies. And thank you for listening. Like sand through an hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is Charlie Navarrete, quoting General Douglas MacArthur. I've looked at that old scoundrel death in the eye many times, but this time I think he has me on the ropes. And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we'll see you next week. Remember, they don't actually grow people on a body farm. No? And every day is a gift. Bye. Bye. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.